This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 86. This is a very special episode. Today, we are blessed to have as our guests, Dr. Mark Goulston and Dr. Diana Hendel. Mark and Diana talked to us about their book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. You definitely don't want to miss this one. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare, to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Well, hello, listeners. This is Tracy. And this is Michelle. We're back again. For another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. Yes, and today was a guest day. It was, and it was a remote day because we're not in the studio. We're all working remotely. Yes, we are. <laughs> Me from so, California, Michelle from Michigan, and thank goodness for technology. Yes, what would we do without it? I have no <laughs> idea. And we have two guests today, so there's actually four of us joined up together on this fabulous interview. And we had the great honor and privilege to interview Dr. Mark Goulston and Dr. Diana Hendel. Mm, uh, two of the most lovely people on earth. I know. Just they are great amazing. Great leaders, great people. It was just so easy to be with them. It really was. And their experiences as clinicians and leaders are phenomenal. And they're different, yet they're the same. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And we talk about their new book that's out, which you're going to learn a lot about. And mm-hmm. it's a, uh, it's, as we've mentioned in the podcast, it's priceless. Right. Um, the information in this book is going to be life changing for many. And, uh, you know, I think what I really appreciate about this book is that it's, it is, helping us all to witness this moment in time and the trauma that healthcare clinicians are experiencing, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, it's documenting it, right? So we don't ever forget. Right, right. And um, they're here to help people through it, which is why I appreciate their work so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and well, we are. We were new to Mark. It was a mm-hmm. pleasure to meet him. We knew Diana. We have a history with her. Yes, and uh, she was a guest uh, on our podcast, and 
she uh, her episode was actually episode number 51. And the title of that episode was Individual and Organizational Trauma, One Healthcare Leader's Experience and the Risks Healthcare Leaders Face Today with COVID-19. And, uh, and then she um, hooked up with her esteemed colleague, Mark, and they wrote another book, right? That's Which right. You should probably mention the title of that, right? That's right. It's called Why Cope When You Can Heal, How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. Yeah, phenomenal book. Yes. So let us tell you a little bit about the authors and our guests today. Yeah. So Dr. Mark Goulston is the inventor of surgical empathy, a process for unlocking people emotionally and psychologically by empathically going to where they are attached to a faulty and dysfunctional coping mechanism and releasing them. He employed that for more than 25 years to treat suicidal patients, and none of them died by suicide. He is the author of nine books, and his book, Just Listen, translated into 26 languages, becoming the top book on listening in the world. I mean, that's phenomenal. It is. He hosts the My Wake Up Call podcast and LinkedIn live stream show called No Strings Attached. Wow. And Dr. Diana Hendel is an executive coach and leadership consultant. She's also a former hospital CEO and the author of Responsible, a memoir, which is a riveting and insightful account of leading during and through the aftermath of a deadly workplace shooting. And she has not only partnered with Mark to co-author the current book they have out, but they have a second book coming out. And uh, that is titled Trauma to Triumph, a Roadmap for Leading Through Disruption and Thriving on the Other Side. And uh, Diana was a CEO of Long Beach Memorial Medical Center and Miller Children's in Women's Hospital. And, you know, that is one of the largest acute care trauma and teaching hospital complexes on the West Coast, for those of you not familiar with that um, particular system. Diane has also served in leadership roles in numerous community organizations and professional associations, and she's just a phenomenal leader, and as we're learning, a phenomenal author as well. Yes. <laughs> so without further ado, here's the interview with Mark and Diane. Well, welcome, Mark and Diana. We're so, so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for accepting our invitation. Thank you for having us. Yes, we're, we're thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to welcome you back, Diana, and to welcome you for the first time, Mark. And uh, before we kind of dive into our questions, um, we thought our listeners might like to know how the two of you met and one thing that you appreciate about each other as co-author partners. So whoever wants to start can go. Well, I, I guess Diana, you had you had known about me because you had read a book that I had written, and then, and then I'll tell you tell them about how I met you and, and how we cemented our relationship. Yeah, so I'll start. Um, gosh, in two thousand nine, the summer of two thousand nine, I came across book uh, Mark's book, Just Listen, and it came at a particularly important time in my life, and it was one of those books that I've saved for years and years, and in fact would order many copies to give away to other people. Um, 
just the way he wrote it and what he offered was really important to me uh, now, but of course at the time. When I published my memoir in March of 2020, um, I boldly called Mark up. I just reached out to him um, in gratefulness to what how he had impacted my life all those years ago. And he responded. Um, and so from March of 2020, we became very fast friends, uh, got to know each other and had so much in common and just eternally grateful, certainly now to be working in collaboration with him. But of course, um, for me, I've known him for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was a thrill to, to meet Diana. I read her memoir and she had me at hello and, and more than that. And, uh, what I, what she didn't know is I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call where I interview people about their purpose, their calling in life, and their wake up calls. And she didn't know that I was vetting her because Harper Collins had reached out to me to write two books. And she didn't know that I was screening her to be my partner. And it just cemented it when we did the podcast. And then I went to Harper Collins and I said, I have a co-author. And I introduced her to Harper Collins and someone named Dottie DeHart, who's worked with us, and it's been a great team. And what I was drawn to, what I appreciate more about her, Diana is so centered. She's clear, she's calm, she's she's mature, she's a great reality check for me, because sometimes I will veer into the sizzle and I need her steak. <laughs> Sounds like a perfect combination. I think so. Meant to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And good for you, Diana. Being yeah. brave and bold and just reaching out. And yeah, I think that's wonderful. And we both want to congratulate you on your new book. It's a fabulous, fabulous book. And it's going to, it's, as we've said, priceless, right? And the name of the book is Why Cope When You Can Heal. And why don't we start out with you telling our leaders just a little bit about why you titled the book that way and then your intention in writing this book. Well, I, uh, I was the one who titled at least the, uh, the, the main title, Why Cope When You Can Heal, because over the years, I'm a trauma therapist. I wrote PTSD for Dummies, which was well-reviewed, but you know, it's, it's not exactly an academic book. And what I noticed is that when I speak to people who've been deeply traumatized by war, by domestic violence, and when I would say to them, good for you, you're so courageous, you got over it, they would look at me and say, I didn't get over it. I got past it. And I said, what do you mean? They said, I'm not the same as I was. What do you mean? I don't feel fully alive. Coping's better than not coping. I don't really have joy. I have fun, but I don't have joy. I don't really have peace. I get exhausted. And when I started sharing with some of those people the potential title, especially women who are more in touch with their feelings, they start to cry. You know, and, and when you'd say to someone who's been deeply traumatized and has that conflict that I just mentioned, and I'd say, why are you crying? And they'd say, if only, if only I could heal. So that became the title because uh, it felt like it viscerally hit a spot and an ache inside people who've been traumatized and are just noble, 
soldiers and healthcare workers, but they don't quite feel as fully alive as they'd like. Mm. Well, that just demonstrates your power to listen, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you start out the book by painting a picture of the perfect storm of trauma. You know, you guys really brought out the wartime nature of the pandemic, the horrific realities working on the front line, the lack of, of having a cohesive plan for the country, lack of necessary equipment, and more than a million healthcare workers getting furloughed and laid off. So just so much happening during this last year. And you concluded this first chapter with another huge factor that plays into all this, and it's that is America's just get over it culture. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that just get over it culture and why you deemed it now the double whammy? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I'd start by saying healthcare workers are amongst the most resilient, the strongest, the toughest, grittiest people in our society. Um, without a doubt, toughness is uh, core to their being. Um, but what we've seen is that um, in, our in our society, but of, of course in healthcare environments, that stiff upper lip, that just get over it, just keep going, um, show up another day, is really central to a large, large part of our healthcare culture. And and for those of the, in the audience that are polarity thinking wonks like myself, it really is that there are two poles. There's the there's the uh, move on, move forward pole, but there's also the processing and healing pole. And so that just get over it culture is really the overplaying of one pole and neglecting the other. And you know there are downsides that emerge when we just get over it um, when we move forward without processing, without healing um, what's happened. And so it was important to us to call that out because by no means do we want to downplay how tough people are, but toughness isn't the antidote. Um, it's the ability to also process um, the feelings, process the experience that people have had. And so it has to be done in tandem. And so that's why it was really important to us to call out that, that society um, uh, the society norm, certainly, right. um, in healthcare. Right. Well, and that's so important. And that's the double whammy, right? If we just move right on to let's move on and we're not paying attention to that and really mm -hmm. managing that whole process and progress tension that's going to mm -hmm. be there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's you, really important. And you're carrying it with you, right? Yes. Your point, Mark, I think in the beginning, right? You, you don't, you don't heal, you don't move forward. You're really not moving forward. <laughs> you think you are, but you're not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or you, yes. you are for a while, but not for long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you also did an excellent job sharing real stories from the front line. Oh my gosh. Some of them were just amazing. And, you know, also that your intention and in putting those stories in the book wasn't to neither sense sensationalize COVID-19 events nor trigger upset in your readers. But rather you call out the importance that, you know, we don't forget the fact that these experiences did happen and we cannot rush past the tragedies experienced. So a little bit of what we were just talking about that, but 
Tell our listeners now why this is so significant in the healing process. Well, we share those stories, not to be alarmist, but to just say these things took, ha- took place in our history as we move hopefully through this process, and we all will. And we don't want it to be forgotten that they actually happen. You know, there was really a rush, especially collectively, when things like this happen or the Iraq and Afghanistan war happened. The world wants to run by it because even people who weren't directly affected by it just don't want to think about it. But in the wake, you leave people who are wounded, broken, hurt, and they're still hurting. And we wanted to put those stories out as a reminder that this happened and other and we're all living through it and past it but our healthcare heroes are having going to have some trouble and one of the re- other reasons we wrote the book is I'm a suicide specialist and for 30 years I focused on that and I just don't want healthcare workers to run into the same fate that veterans did you know when they got past the war and the world was ready to move past it and they were stuck and many of them tragically came to a, a, a tragic end. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to put th- this out. Ne- it's kind of like never forget. You know, there's been some times in the history of the world, World War II and the Nazis, never forget. And we wanted to make sure that people never forgot because as these people are going to continue to be hurting, we're going to continue to help them because they earned it. They certainly have. And I, I think the other thing here too, for me is just that, you know, um, I just don't, I don't even know if people have the awareness and that is my hope in your book, right? It's not just the healthcare clinicians, not just the healthcare leaders, not just the people that are immediately involved with healthcare, but the public at large, you know, they know there are heroes, but I don't think they have an understanding of the depth and breadth of the significance of what's being experienced on a day-to-day basis and how this is going to have significant impacts on their mental health. So you know, it's a wake-up call to the world, right? <laughs> and it's interesting because you bring up a, an interesting point because what we're seeing in the media you know, are doctors and nurses who are coming out and and then the media is pulling out of them. Aren't you angry at the people who don't wear masks? And one of the problems for healthcare workers, which is different than military, is healthcare workers, doctors and nurses, we have trouble with anger. We have trouble feeling anger because we're caretakers. We aren't like military warriors. And and it's interesting because the media will say, well, aren't you angry at the people who won't wear masks? And you can see the conflict in them. Yeah, but but I'm not an angry person. I take care of people. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. And so you can just feel the conflict brewing in them that has to go somewhere and we're going to help it come out safely. That's such a great point. Such a great point. Yeah. Well, and they're used to dealing with that, you know, different levels of conflict with patients and their behaviors and the things that break like. So they're used to, you know, being compassionate, right? Yeah. <laughs> Empathizing, being compassionate. And uh, yeah, so that it makes it very, very difficult. Well, you talk about um, one of the hardest struggles healthcare providers face is moral injury. And so I think it would be helpful. I think this is such a critical piece 
And so I thought we thought it'd be helpful just if you could describe to the listeners what moral injury really is, and then some examples of when it's experienced by care providers. You know, I'm so glad you raised this question because it, it is one of the hardest struggles that healthcare providers are facing, um, that moral injury. And that moral injury is the damage that's done to their conscience or to their moral compass when they're unable to prevent an act that transgresses or conflicts with their deeply held beliefs or morals or ethics. And so we're seeing lots of examples of that in with this pandemic. Um, we often think of moral uh, injury with relationship to like soldiers on the field being ordered to do something to, to kill someone or hurt someone. Um, and so it may not immediately come to mind that moral injury is occurring for healthcare workers as well. But there are a number of examples. Um, one of them is that early on, when we weren't really sure how this virus was being transmitted, healthcare workers had to keep a tremendous amount of distance from their patients. They couldn't really touch them. Uh, they were behind the walls. Um, and even though they're practicing social distancing now, uh, the degree of separation from their patients. So they would often have to watch helplessly um, a patient passing away and they couldn't physically comfort them and touch them. Um, and really following on what Mark just said, what Tracy, you just mentioned about how healthcare workers are empathetic and compassionate, uh, their caregivers. Um, this really goes against their beliefs about how people pass away. And so the idea that someone would pass away alone and add to that, that they're watching as someone passes away who is completely alone, is unable to be with their family members. And that can, <clears throat> excuse me, continues today. Um, at best, they're connected by, you know, an iPad or through the Wi-Fi. And so that has really created a lot of struggle but on another level that Mark mentioned, that moral conflict when they leave a shift, perhaps where they have witnessed or seen or known that dozens of people have died on their shift, which is very uncommon for most healthcare workers, but very much more common now with this pandemic. And they go to the grocery store or encounter people in the public who refuse to wear a mask in that sense that this is preventable. This is preventable by wearing a mask. This is preventable by keeping that social distancing. Furthermore, it's preventable in the future by becoming vaccinated. So that creates an awful lot of moral conflict for healthcare workers continuing. And then, of course, we heard about this in New York early on in the hotspot, and we're certainly experiencing it now in California, where hospitals are literally overwhelmed not close to being overwhelmed with COVID patients and patients near death. So the idea that they're having to make those ethical decisions about who receives care, who is sent home to pass away, um, who languishes in a hallway. And so it's extraordinarily difficult and traumatizing and creates a tremendous amount of traumatic stress for healthcare workers um, and, and so those are a few examples of moral injury and how it is showing up in this pandemic. And it made me think about the leaders too, right? Because many of them are making some of the key decisions that the clinicians have to carry out. 
And so what a struggle as well, right? While they're not hands-on providers anymore, right? They are, they are um, determining the realities, right? With the policies and the different um, changes that they have to make. And it's, it's just, it's really- I will say, I will say that of the thousands of conversations I've had with healthcare leaders over the past 10 months, um, many of whom are clients or former colleagues or certainly uh, friends, every conversation has led with the decision-making, the, that sense of conflict, that sense of moral conflict. And as you say, the leaders are not immune to that at all. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a trauma that is affecting everyone within the organization, regardless of their rank or their role or their title. Um, yes. Well, we think one of the most significant chapters of the book, not that they weren't all significant, <laughs> Is a chapter warning about the aftershocks are coming, and um, I think what what a what a great way to um, bring that message, and you know just your expertise in dealing with trauma and examples from the historical epidemics were powerful, right? It gives context to the present, right? To look back to the past and other ways that we've experienced this, and you warn the readers in the healthcare industry. They may have a serious mental health crisis on their hands in the very near future. Um, and that analogy of COVID-19 is an earthquake followed by the aftershocks and that widespread cases of PS, you know, PTSD in healthcare providers, you know, that's so daunting. I mean, it just really gives you the sense of that, that um, seismic impact right, that is about to, that is about to occur and will occur. I mean, we know it's going to occur. Um, so tell our listeners more about the realities of those aftershocks and like the impact of our, on our healthcare system. Well, I think one of the best ways to do that, and she doesn't know I'm going to do this, is I'm going to talk about Diana. Because Diana went through a crisis in a hospital that she was the CEO of. There was a double murder-suicide by an employee of the month, and she soldiered on, and her memoir, Responsible Memoir, is unbelievable, and I, I would urge people to read that as well. And she shares her story in our book, but by her own admission, you know, when you're duty-bound, you focus on doing whatever you need to do, but what would happen is she stayed on the same, in the same area. You know, she didn't leave the hospital. So she went on the grounds and saw where it all happened. And you get triggered. And there would be bomb scares and she'd get triggered. But, you know, being duty bound, she thought she was handling it and she threw herself into meaningful, purposeful activity, which which is one of the best ways to deal with this. But it was kind of putting lipstick on a pain. And because of who she is, and this is why I think the world of her she reached a point where, you know, the the hospital was healthy. And I, I, I'll never forget when she told me it was healthy and they deserved the healthy CEO, which I wasn't. And it's when then she that's when she discovered, you know, maybe I have this thing called PTSD. And the hospital's in good hands. We got it to a good place. And maybe it's time for me to go take care of myself. Because, you know, I'm just not fully there. 
and then she dedicated herself to getting better. And now she's come back to help organizations. And one of the other reasons I love uh, having her as a co-author is I can focus on the what the individual needs to do to recover from and begin to heal from deep trauma like this. But as she'll talk about, organizations have trauma. You know, initially everybody pulls together in COVID-19. Let's all put our Let's all fight that virus, but inevitably it sort of devolves into finger pointing, blaming, guilt, shame, anger, who did what and why didn't they? And things really threaten to become unraveled. And so I think that's going to happen on a large scale. And I hope she's okay that I she didn't know I was going to tee her up okay. as sort of an example of the process. But uh, but she's a she's a living and healing and thriving example that I, all of that is possible yes she is <laughs> we concur we concur yes yes well and i think to your point right it's the aftershocks may come in multiple layers i think right because to your point people soldier on right and it's a part of the culture and it's a part of who we are as leaders but then as time goes on, you begin to realize, so you don't even know right away, right? That maybe this is your situation, that this trauma is impacting you this way. And it isn't until time goes on or somebody shines the flashlight in front of you that you can see, oh my gosh, right? I'm, I'm seeing something I didn't know. Um, and you have that reflection, right? That ability to, to recognize it within yourself. So this may come in waves. Would you right. agree? I, I, I completely agree because what happens, and we can talk about it with uh, further questions, is when veterans come back from a war, you know, and when healthcare workers get past this, what'll happen is the, these wars have taught people to keep their guard up, keep their guard up in order to focus and function. And then what happens is when the danger passes, you know, it looks like you can lower your guard. But if you haven't really processed what you went through fully, if, you, if you've coped but haven't begun to heal, when you lower your guard, you can, you can get triggered, very. You, you, you drive by the hospital where it happened, even after you left that place. Mm -hmm. um, you, uh, you, know, you see someone years from now wearing masks for whatever reason, maybe to protect themselves uh, because of some respiratory thing, and immediately you get a flashback and you're back in the middle of the pandemic, even though you're just seeing one person wearing a mask for their medical reasons. And so uh, and so those triggers can occur because you got past it, but you never got over it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think in listening to the conversation, the response to that question too, uh, Mark and Diana, it brings to me that whole polarity between individual and organization. I guess when I read the book, I was thinking about the aftershocks for the person, but it happens at the organizational level, which goes back to just get over it culture. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and if you think about, we've got clinicians and leaders. It, this isn't about just a small group of people that are going to go through. So when we think about the impact, you've got mm -hmm. leaders that are, you know, struggling with PTSD, you've got clinicians, like this is serious. Yes. 
Yes. Right? This is like this is like an 8.0 on the Richter scale. Like mm-hmm. this is not a small little thing. And I, you know, others have called it a parallel pandemic, right? We're at risk for a parallel pandemic. Um, and it certainly probably isn't, and it's not unique to the United States, right? And this is an international, a global situation. You know, what's interesting is a lot of leaders in the corporate world, and they know this is part of their responsibility. A lot of them do not like to fire employees, especially around the holidays. And, you know, and you have these pressures, you have to do what you have to do. But if you imagine, what's it like not liking to fire people and then being in a position where you send them into danger? You know, it's one thing if you're in a military, you send them into danger. But imagine what leaders in healthcare are going through. I'm sending them back. Imagine what it's like to have to call up retired healthcare because you just don't have anyone else. And um, I haven't been called up, but you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I could be a much much assistant as, as a retired psychiatrist of all things. And but imagine having to do that because there's there's not enough healthcare workers. What the leaders are going through. So just because they're not directly in the front lines, don't think that they're not going through their their own kind of uh, leadership hell. Oh yeah, and they Very feel so, so responsible, right? They feel so responsible for the the teams that they lead. Right. Yeah, their greatest strength, that feeling of responsibility mm-hmm. um, that all healthcare feel like, uh, workers certainly feel, but certainly the leaders do as well. That greatest strength, um, it is a both and. It also can be a source of moral injury. Um, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there are so many polarities here, so much both and, individual and organization. Mm-hmm. Um, even that sense that you can be shattered and still be intact. I think I thought through my PTSD journey that, well, I was functioning and functioning really quite well. Um, I was coping in pretty positive and socially acceptable ways. Um, When I look back on it, it was mostly around overworking, (laughs) which is very socially acceptable to overwork. Um, And that sense of driving forward. Um, But I do think very much it will continue to emerge the impact of traumatic stress and it'll be confusing for people because they are functioning and in many cases so well but that doesn't mean that there's also not damage and injury that they need to heal and and recover from yeah well you know one of the things that we liked so much about your book was that you gave practical explanations and the you know and advice like that. I remember when I got it, I opened it up and I I did start at the beginning. I went, oh my gosh, they're actually giving people advice to help them, helping them understand some of the dynamics. And uh, Mark, you share a framework that you developed called the Twelve Phases Emotional Algorithm. And could you briefly kind of walk through that with our listeners and tell them a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a concept called <clears throat> a sense of coherence. And I think the developer was uh, someone named Aaron Antonovsky. I, I may be butchering the name. But what, what uh, he said is that when you give people a sense of coherence, a framework that makes sense out of something, it makes it more manageable. And why we came up with an algorithm uh, is not just because it seems to be a very contemporary term, 
But an algorithm, when it's really wired together well, it takes you from point A to point B, and they're like Lego-like blocks that many people go through. Now, this is not an absolute, it's a guide, but the 12-step algorithm are kind of the steps or the experiences that someone deeply traumatized goes through. And I think you'll be able to track it, so I'm going to share them with you, and, and I'm going to ask you to feel into them because my... Because what we find is that when we share them with people, they lean and they say, that's my story. Because many times what happens is people get chopped up or will send you, you need medication. Oh, you need EMDR or you need, you know, uh, uh, medita meditation and yoga. And they're all great. But the, tw the 12 phase uh, emotional algorithm, I, I think, well, let, let me see if you can track it with me. So. There you are, you're a healthcare worker, and you don't see that many deaths. You see maybe a few a month. And like you said, you just saw eight in your shift, including your supervisor. And then as you go to your car, you see the bodies in the storage units because there's not enough room in the morgue. And so, some, so the trauma happens, and that triggers a sense of horror. And horror is something beyond anything you can even imagine. And then horror uh, then triggers terror. You know, it's terrifying. And after that, you can feel fragile. But what happens is you're in, and, and there's a part of you that if you weren't so duty bound and committed to your fellow healthcare workers, you could develop an overriding sense of panic. So if you think of it, the, uh, uh, the horror, terror, fragile can pick up speed, and you could really go into panic in which you couldn't function. And so what happens, be because you are duty-bound, you need to do something to prevent that. And what happens conveniently is with the increased danger matching the responsibility, there's a huge adrenaline rush. NBA players can play you know, in a game with a broken leg because of the adrenaline. So the adrenaline helps you insulate and push away the negative thoughts, push uh, push down the scary feelings. And, and, and you can go through the experience where you think, I don't know how I can, you know, go through another shift and you blink your eyes and you've been up 48 hours straight working. And what happens is there's this dichotomy because you feel almost superhuman on the surface, but you know it's doing a job on you internally, but you'll get around to it. And then what happens is you do that to focus and function. And you're able to do that because you're insulated with the benefit danger triggering all this adrenaline. And then what happens is the danger eventually passes and it will, but when the danger passes, the insulation passes. And when the insulation passes, everything that you pushed down and away feels like it's going to come up and eviscerate you. Why would veterans who are no longer in a war, why would they come home and want to kill themselves? Why are they so depressed? They're safe. It's because everything they had to push down or push away needs to come out. And, uh, and then what happens is we believe PTSD or post-traumatic industry or other, you know, people are trying to change the wording so there's less of a stigma. You know, a lot of the symptoms of that is to keep those thoughts and feelings from coming up because it feels if you let them come up, they won't come up in sort of an easy to handle way. They will come up and eviscerate you.
they will just they will just cause you to feel shattered. And so what happens uh, after that, uh, you can become disabled in which you never quite get it back. And um, I could almost cry because I'm already picturing some of those people that just never make it back. And yeah. they, it, it's a tragedy. Uh, or you can recover, and we make a distinction between recovering and beginning to heal, because recovery is like we said at the beginning with the title of the book, uh, they're coping. You know, they're functioning. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I still get nightmares, and a lot of times I have to have more drinks than I probably should, but I'm doing okay. So from a functional standpoint, yeah, they've kind of recovered. But what we wanted to be able to give them is the chance to begin to heal. And so the chance to begin to heal uh, caused us to come up with uh, an idea called surgical empathy. And surgical empathy is, is a name I finally gave the process that I used for 25 years with suicidal patients. And none of my patients died by suicide in 25 years. And what I realized, what seemed to enable that is that when you go in to the horrific and terrifying feelings and you make it safe for them to remember them, uh, express how they felt, feel them, and you do it in a way in which they don't all come out and explode, um, people can begin to heal. And that's why we call it surgical empathy because you're going in and, and you're following the algorithm and so it gives, and so it allows people to then start to talk about, uh, you know, what was the first horrific moment? Well, I saw eight people die on my shift. What terrified you? Well, I was kind of, you know, well trained. I was fine, but then I got home. I got home, and my mind was a victim of its imagination, and I, and I didn't sleep at all, and I had to go back to another shift the next day. So, so if you can picture what I've just described mm -hmm. and enabling people to start describing uh, the experience of it. And then one of the things we also talk about is giving them the emotions to label it. Mm -hmm. What did you feel when you felt horrified? What did you feel when you felt terrified? And we've actually come up with 12 words because there's a lot of research on affect labeling. Uh, one of the uh, leaders in that is a fellow named Matthew Lieberman out of UCLA. And I think he wrote a book called The Social Brain. And he basically said, when you give people the exact word for what they're feeling, and they express it and feel it at the same time, the agitation goes down. And so you're walking them through the algorithm, you're giving them the words to express it. Mm -hmm. And as they do that, they, as they do that, many of them begin to cry with relief. Mm -hmm. So could you picture that or feel that as we, I went through that? Yeah. Yeah, I could. And, and it also, it, to me, it, it's, it's a logical process, but one that you just don't think about. Like that average person wouldn't even think about it. And probably healthcare providers may not even think about it in that specific way. And so I do think it makes sense. I could just be with you as you kind of walked us through that. And um, the other description that you described in the book that Tracy and I talked about that I thought was so helpful too as a metaphor was the whole 
sewing the abscess back up. Like, and that's kind of your whole surgical empathy. What's needed is let it out, but do it in a way that follows those principles and it's guided and it's safe. Right. Yeah. And if you, because if you think of what an abscess is, you know, we're all healthcare workers here. You go in, you clean it out, yep. you go to the bottom of it, and the body wants to heal from the inside out. You mm -hmm. leave a drain in. I mean, to people on the outside would say, how can you leave a drain in? That person's going to leak out. You know, what are you doing? No, 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 no. They're going to heal from the inside out. And we believe that that happens also emotionally and psychologically, but you need to go to the bottom yeah. and give them that safe uh, grid work or algorithm that they can then walk, talk, and feel their way through. Yeah. It's like, you know, you got to feel the feelings, right? Like you got it because we've suppressed them. We pushed it down, pushed it away like it wasn't there, right? To get through. And it's like, I kept thinking about the beach ball, right? That you hold underwater <laughs> when you let go of it, how it just like, like smacks you in the face, right? Like it just comes bursting out. That's what I kept thinking about when you were talking about this is this beach ball underwater, right? It's the whole mess of feelings and experiences that you're just can't then pressing or pushing under the water. And then when you finally let it go, if you don't do it safely, can be very, you know, traumatic, right? Again, and... Yeah, so I want to give you a practical tactical. So if people listening in, uh, as we said early on, a lot of healthcare workers are going to be like military. They need help, but they don't want it because it's too scary. And this this is an example of a, a more bite-sized uh, uh, part of surgical empathy. Uh, something we've observed is that when you talk to someone, and this you can also apply to your teenagers who are having a rough time, when you talk to someone, you say, how are you doing? And they say they're great. They're usually good. But if they say, I'm fine, they're not. When someone, your teenager, or these people say, I'm fine, what they're really saying is, leave me alone. And, one, and there's a three-step process that also is an example of surgical empathy where if someone gives you the I'm fine response, you pause and you say, you know, I don't think you're fine. Let me ask you a question. At its, these are the three questions, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling? And we're not talking awful behavior, but, and they're gonna say what? At its absolute worst, how awful, like pain, like really, really just, awful thoughts and feelings you're capable of feeling. And if you're talking with a spouse or a teenager, they might say, okay, pre uh, pretty awful. And you say pretty awful or very awful. Okay, very awful. Get off my back already. The second question is, and when you're feeling that at its worst, how alone do you feel? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, okay, all alone. And then going back to like the re-experiencing it, the third step is take me to the last time you felt it. What? Yeah, it was at 2.30 in the morning, couldn't get back to sleep. We heard you kind of walking around the house. What was that all about? And, and there's something magical when you get someone, a teenager or a spouse you're worried about, to describe something so clearly that you can see it. They re-feel it. And when they refeel it, they're not alone. 2.30 in the morning, yeah, I was walking around and I 
you know, I couldn't get back to sleep. I felt like punching a pillow. Then I felt like putting my fist through the wall. And then I kept looking for outdated sleeping pills. And, and I was really going off the deep end. And then the sun rose. So can you see that in your mind's eye? That's an example of helping pull it out. But that's, that's another surgical empathy technique. Very powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I think we're all going to use that on someone tonight. I, I was just thinking. <laughs> I got a couple people in mind. <laughs> I, I've done this interview before uh -huh. and someone someone was like a deer in the headlights and they said, can you use it on yourself? Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, think it'll, I think it'll work with a few tweaks. Yeah, give it a try. <laughs> For sure. Well, Diana, we loved your chapter on a call to action leading through the pandemic and, um, and beyond. And we know, right, it comes from that personal experience that you've had and as a previous CEO who experienced that organizational trauma that Mark shared with us earlier. And on page 108, you say, it is said that crisis makes the leader, but it also exposes the poor one. Mm -hmm. So what advice can you uh, offer healthcare leaders um, who recognize that PTSD does not have to be inevitable, but does indeed require that call to action? What are, what are your words for them? Yeah. Well, I wrote that line because we often think of um, the heroic acts when something terrible happens and we see leadership emerge. But I think often we see leadership retreat um, and it may not be apparent. Um, it may not be obvious. It may just create a void. Uh, and organizations and individuals who have thrived after trauma are ones where leaders, and I don't necessarily mean the titled person, but leaders um, emerge um, in a way where they model their vulnerability. They're in touch with how the biological response of fight, flight, or freeze has impacted them. They're able to connect and communicate and create a sense of unity within the organization. And that ability to connect and to communicate and create unity is paramount in the aftermath of a trauma. Um, Mark had mentioned earlier how initially our sense of camaraderie is really strong, but it doesn't take long before the finger pointing or the questions of why emerge. And it doesn't take long before organizations that have cracks in their cultures begin to splinter apart. They do become polarized. Um, and so a leader's ability to um, sense that that's possible and do everything possible to keep people united, keep people together is really important. But again, when a leader herself or himself has been traumatized, sometimes people disappear uh, or they avoid. Um, in essence, they freeze. And so uh, that creates a void in communication. And when voids are evident in an organization, uh, people create their own narratives and fill those voids and just further uh, splinters the organization um, apart. So a leader's ability to communicate first and foremost is extraordinarily important um, to come out early and often with what they do know and say what they don't know. 
a lot of times leaders will will wait too long to communicate because I think we've been taught that we don't want to communicate until we know everything. Um, we certainly don't want to communicate until we have our emotions in check. Uh, we want we're, we're perfectionists often. Um, so a leader's ability to communicate um, authentically, sometimes with vulnerability, but early and often, um, clearly and concisely. Um, establishing a pattern of communication that it's known throughout the organization that the leader will communicate on a frequent basis and an announced basis, a uh, consistent basis is really important. Uh, it's important for leaders not to hide behind spokespersons. Um, sometimes people have to speak to the media through a spokesperson, of course, but it can't be a way to retreat or avoid uh, the leader being uh, what we, what I often called standing in, um, taking charge, being ever present to the organization. So that's a tactic that is um, extremely important. It's paramount to the success of an, an organization's ability to navigate a trauma, uh, both in the short run and in the aftermath. I think the flip side of that and a strong part of communication is listening. And this is a tougher one for all of us as leaders, because most often, that most, most likely, we've become and rose through the ranks because of what we know or our ability to solve or fix things and to have all the answers. And so it's perhaps not as much of a habit of really stopping to listen and to hear what's being said, even if we don't like it, even if it's something that puts us on the defensive. And so our ability to really listen, because um, we know that there can be a lot of wisdom in resistance. There can be a lot of wisdom in what people within the organization are expressing when they're in pain or hurt or concerned about what's happening in the organization. So that ability to communicate and to listen are cornerstones um, for for all leaders. And I, I think in the initial days um, of COVID, and, and maybe even still now, but certainly in the initial days, I know that was one of the key things we heard consistently from leaders that they were struggling with was communicating because the information was changing so quickly that by the time they were communicating, it was all you know, it was already false, or or it was changing. Right. And so it was just so hard because the information coming in wasn't consistent. Right. And so it made it really difficult. So I think they took that responsibility. So, you know, um, strongly, but yet really just were really struggling themselves with that. Well, you raise such a good point because the ability then to communicate and to listen in the throes of trauma become really difficult. Uh, so one of the things that we've highlighted in our second book together um, that's actually coming out month after next in, in mid-March is hardwiring a lot of the practices around rapid response, around communication templates, so that there are ready resources for leaders to go to, so that they're not having to entirely think on their feet when they themselves have been traumatized. And so we're firm believers, certainly in addressing the emotional impact and being aware of the emotional impact for individuals, but also 
hardwiring processes, implementing structure that do some of the heavy lifting for leaders when they're in the throes of trauma. Mm -hmm. Wow, can't wait to read that book. <laughs> it's called Triumph, From Trauma to Triumph, ah. and it's helping leaders uh, navigate disruption, uh, but thriving on the other side. So it very much has a polarity thinking, a both and component. Yes. Um, and in fact, it's framed very much with a polarity thinking um, structure. Great. Oh, that's yeah. fabulous. Yeah, we're really excited about it too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are too now. <laughs> well, so in addition to that, as we kind of wrap up, so we have a, you have a new book coming out. What other ways can our listeners connect with you? Well, we have a website, um, why cope when, why cope when you can heal.com. And on it, there's a variety of resources okay. and certainly, uh, people can connect to us directly through that website and we invite people to, to seek it out. Right. We'll put that in the show notes along with the right. title of your up and coming book. Yeah, I think that would be the best way. And, and we're adding to it and, uh, and, and there's various press releases and excerpts that people can find there and, you know, uh, opportunities to interact with both Diana and me. And uh, we invite that. I mean, we're yeah. all going through this together. We are. We yes, are. we are. Wow. Well, that was just an amazing interview. I think some of my key takeaways was really the how – just the power of the individual and the organization. And I think, Mark, you know, being a psychiatrist and all of the work you've done in the field at the individual level, and then Diana, through your personal experience um, and the lessons that need to come to the organization, I just have this incredible feeling between, well, this book, now the next one, that's going to have a huge impact on both individuals and organizations. And I love that you have lived these experiences. It's not something on an academic shelf. You've lived them and it just brings so much power. I can't thank you enough for being with us today. Oh yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your message, your book. Um, and just, I, and, you know, in addition, as I said earlier, in addition to the healthcare leaders and the clinicians, I think this is just going to change the view of all of us as consumers of healthcare around mm -hmm. the significance of these efforts. And, yeah. you know, I mean, we're already clinging pots and screaming about the heroes, right? But I think it's really going to bring some reality around what that means to be that hero uh, in today's age. And I just think that's going to have a significant impact. I've got a list of people that I want to send this book to that I think would benefit from it. Yeah. So thank, thank you. So That's much. great. Yeah. Well, it's just a, it's just so needed. It's priceless as we said at the beginning and um, we're just thrilled that we can share it with our leader or our listeners. And uh, is there any final words that you want to say before we close for today? Well, maybe a teaser, you know, for the next book, trauma to triumph. Um, if you're a leader um, and, and, and we cover this plus with all kinds of uh, uh, structures uh, that we lay out in the next book. But if you're a leader, this is what your people are listening for. In fact, I think if you can always keep in mind that whoever you're with are always listening for something, you know, Tracy and Michelle, you are listening for information 
that is practical that people can take action on that will help them get through this. And, and, and you're listening from your guests, Diane and I, for information that can actually pull that off. And, and what people are listening for, if you're a leader, is uh, to go back to something you said before. Uh, and I actually use the example, but not necessarily the politics of Governor Cuomo when he did the briefings. And if you'll remember them, uh, he did a pretty good job. What, you're, what people are listening to from you is what happened? What does that mean for us and me particularly as, as one of your people? Are we going to get through this? Um, how are we going to get through this? What are you going to do? What do you need me to do? And when's, when's the next time you'll keep us updated? And I think he did a pretty good job, you know, when he was doing the daily briefings. I won't get into politics, but there's other leaders who didn't do quite as good a job. <laughs> and I guess I'll add or say in closing, I really have so much respect for what both of you are doing and the work you are doing and have long been a fan. And I'm so excited for what you're continuing to do to really help others. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Mark. Well, you're both yeah. certainly an inspiration to us, and I'm yes. sure you are going to be to our listeners as well. So, Well, you're Thanks. an inspiration. To build on what Diana said, you're an inspiration mm -hmm. to us. She's known you. I'm just sort of new to this, <laughs> to the two of you. But it, it, it's clear your dedication to the well-being. I, I mean, it, it just it just overflows. And... And I don't think that's lost on your listeners. And, and it's much appreciated. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been another phenomenal episode. And uh, so to our listeners, we will see you next time. Stay safe. and mm -hmm. Stay and, strong. Uh, stay strong. And, and read we'll, the book. Yes. Read <laughs> the book. We'll have information in the show notes. Yeah. So we'll see you soon. Thanks as always for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We'd love to hear and answer your questions. If you have questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com and we may include your question in a future episode. You can find show notes and links at our website, www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions on our website at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast.